Hello and welcome to another edition of the Short Side Option Podcast. I'm Chris Sork. And folks, we have a full couch tonight. To my right, I've got D. Lily. You know him, you love him. And then, friend of the show, Quinn Hoover. Man's the far end of the couch here. And uh, we have a full-fledged show for you here today in terms of talking K-State basketball and also recapping National Signing Day uh, which conclu- with the, uh, the late signing period, which concluded last week. Quentin will, uh, as our resident football recruiting expert, will uh, tell you what you need to know about the 2019 recruiting class. But first, we start on the hardwood, and we start with the Scorpion. Going 2-0 in the Lone Star State with wins over Baylor last Saturday and a great win over Texas, a little bit shorthanded win with uh, most of the team being sick with the flu, it sounds like, and of course with uh, Cartier Jada's uh, injury to his right ring finger. So Jada's going to be out for a while, it looks like. However, it didn't matter as K-State wins last night 71-64 over the Horns and then beats Baylor uh, last Saturday uh, also by 7 points, 70-63. to so we've got a full show for you today, I'm talking a little basketball, talking a little football, and now I'm going to bring in D. Louie to this edition of the Short Side Option. D. Louie, how are we doing today? Uh, best day of my life, Icon. Um, happy to uh, be here and happy to be crowded in on this couch to talk, uh, talk about sports, man. <laughs> Is there anything better, man? Uh, maybe drinking beer. <laughs> yeah? You yeah. think so? I, li- I uh, like doing both of those things, but... Don't make me choose which one I like okay. more. Okay, we, we, I might hold your feet to the fire okay. later on that, Good. but just just a, a fair warning there. And uh, Quentin, uh, you got the other end of the couch here. How are we doing this evening? Uh, riding high on Bruce right now. The scorpion lives, and, and we're all doing pretty strong. Well, it it was a uh, it was a great week for K State. Uh, we came on this air uh, just last week to talk a little bit about. Uh, K-State going on the road to Baylor, a team that was right uh, right at the top of the Big 12 with K-State, uh, just a half game behind K-State at the time. And quite frankly, it didn't look great for K-State during that game uh, as Baylor had about a seven or eight point lead, I believe it was, um, with about 10 minutes left to go in the game. But the Scorpion goes on, the Scorpion and crew go on a big run late in the second half to pull out with a 70-63 to win over the Baylor Bears. Drew, you're watching this game here, and as I mentioned, Baylor had a 48-41 to lead with 9.49 left in the game. K-State wasn't really, uh, you know, not really playing – Real well offensively, having some struggles with the zone, uh, but a couple outside shots started falling for K State, and and they were able to uh, to erase that seven point deficit and, and win this one uh, by seven. Well, over the last two games, it seems to me that you know K State's done kind of a one eighty offensively. I mean, especially against Texas last night, but even against Baylor, you know we. We struggled against the zone for a period of time, and as you mentioned, K-State found itself down seven points uh, with under 10 minutes to go. And then uh, 
we started penetrating the zone a little better, and Jada got a bucket. Cam gets fouled, shooting a three, and drains all three of them. Uh, then Dean hits a jumper, and all of a sudden, starts shots start to fall at an important time. And uh, all of a sudden, K-State starts to put offense together when it matters. And I think that's exactly. been the biggest story, not only against Baylor, but also against Texas last night. Yeah, K-State erases that, uh, that deficit pretty quickly. Uh, when it when it came down to it, uh, Jada getting a three, and then of course with with Stokes uh, knocking in the free throws there to to get K State right back into it and make it a one possession game, and then down the stretch, really just I thought great execution. Uh, how did you kind of see it, Keel? Great execution down the end, and you could definitely tell that that one three one zone caused all kinds of problems in the first half, eliminating Dean's ability to get the ball at the elbow, where he's proven to be pretty efficient. Uh, but as we figured that out, I, I feel like we've gotten a rhythm. Cardi was a huge factor for us down the stretch of being able to, to drive and create those open passing lanes. And even at the end, you know, when it came down to it, when foul trouble was occurring for both teams, we went 15 of 17 from the free throw line. Yeah, and this game. is not a good free throw shooting not a, team. I think we I were mean, one of the worst, at worst in the Big 12, I think. So that was critical. And, and even, I think... Our leader, the Scorpion, uh, came out after the game and said, you know, games like these are the ones that Dean and Barry and Cam, we lost three years ago when they were freshmen. Absolutely. And, and Waco's not the, the toughest place to play in the Big 12, but it's still the armpit of, of the Big 12, and any road win you can get is huge. Yeah, and with K-State going on the road and getting that win, it's, it's one of those things that teams that win the conference win these kind of games, especially uh, with – it being a shorthanded Baylor team, uh, no Mackay Mason, no King McClure, uh, two of their uh, most experienced players. It was a game that K State had you had you lost that game, that would have really felt like an opportunity that slipped by. Yeah, that would have hurt. So, uh, when you look at kind of the star performers of that game, Stokes, player of the game, I think without question, from in, in my book, twenty points. Uh, seven of seven from the line. Uh, also, three of six from behind the arc. Really a strong game all throughout for him. Also contributing with four assists and six rebounds as, as really the smallest man on the court. So I thought that was a game where, you know, it seems like, too, with K-State's experience, and, and you saw it last night against Texas, with really everyone chipping in uh, and having – I believe all five stars against Texas in double figures. When you have that balanced scoring, it allows. I mean, so Dean Wade, four of ten from the field, uh, zero of two from behind the arc. Not a great game. Only only chipping in twelve points, but uh, you know maybe not one of his best games. But Kamal Stokes is right there to pick him up. Yeah, and I mean, people, K State fans over the last year really, ever since Cam got back from his injury last year. It seems like people have been pretty hard on Cam, and for fair reason, because he hadn't really played at that pre-injury level. But over this winning streak uh, K-State's gone on, I think he's really stepped up and kind of developed into the player that the K-State fans really expected out of him and got to see a little bit of last year. But uh, over this winning streak, he's subtly contributed a lot. As you mentioned, 20 points against... Uh, Baylor and also a really nice game last night hitting just some big shots and especially from outside. When you look at 
where K-State finds themselves after this Baylor game. So, of course, uh, the Texas game last night. Then the news comes out with Cartier Jada injuring his, his right ring finger and is going to be sidelined for, uh, I believe the term was an indefinite uh, period of time. You look at this win as even almost being even bigger because this is a game where K-State could have easily lost. And when you have those kind of injuries to uh, a key player, uh, really for K-State, as, as Jada, who I thought was really the X factor in this game too against Baylor, uh, had some really clutch baskets and, of course, with a incredible play to really put the exclamation on it with uh, his acrobatic save, throwing uh, the the uh, uh, throwing a pass headed out of bounds half the court to a streaking Barry Brown uh, to to slam it in. That really gave K State a lead that they would never, given them a little bit more of a lead, and of course they would never relinquish. Uh, but that was the highlight play of this game uh, for me. But he also had a huge three-pointer when K-State was down by seven. Uh, deep three, steps right in rhythm and and uh, knocks it down. So his contribution is certainly not lost. Uh, is there anything else we really want to cover about the Baylor game? Uh, I This was a huge win for K-State. And like I said previously, if you're going to go on to win a Big 12 title, you look back at your schedule and you can circle certain games that were very crucial uh, in, a, in accomplishing that achievement. And I think that this is one at the end of the season we'll look back on and say, this is quite, quite the win, and this is something that we really needed. Oh, I think that's a testament to, to any champion that's come out of the Big 12 the last few years. You, you found ways to hold court at home and steal wins on the road, and and this road trip was huge down in Texas between Baylor and Texas. Well, and one one last thing on the Baylor game, and, and this also seeps over to Texas too, but K-State's a team that isn't going to be mistaken for a team with a lot of depth, I don't think. Certainly, uh, yeah. You know, especially without Jada, but even with Jada against Baylor. Um, but there's enough balance across the starting five that – a, te- a guy like Dean Wade, the preseason conference player of the year, uh, if he doesn't have a big night, I mean, he dumped in 12 points, but... A pretty pretty pedestrian performance. Not really. a super efficient night for him going 4 of 10 from the field. But it's it's a testament to the, to the balance of K-State's roster that they can count on a number of guys to step up. I mean, on a night when Dean isn't super efficient, Barry goes 4 of 8. But uh, then Cam, you know, not one of K-State's most prolific scorers coming into the season, certainly. But Cam just goes off for 20 points. Um, It's nice to be able to say, okay, well, even if Dean or even if Barry doesn't, you know, have a super great offensive night, uh, that we can look to somebody else to step up and uh, provide some balance. And you saw that with Cam on uh, against Baylor. And then uh, against Texas, it was just... Everybody was getting theirs, and particularly Xavier Sneed, and we'll talk about that in a little. Well, absolutely. Let's go ahead and get into that Texas game. Uh, K-State, it's it's almost uh, a little bit in terms of how the game was looking, a bit of a carbon copy uh, to me. It, with the Baylor lead, it was in the second half, but 
with the Texas game, it was it was more in the first half where Texas kind of got it out to a to a nice lead, and you kind of were wondering, okay, well, is this not going to be K State's night? But once again, the the senior leadership, the experience that this team has, really throughout the roster, uh, shines again. So K State wins seventy sixty three over Baylor, and then they uh, have another very similar score seventy one sixty four over the Texas Longhorns. And when you look at this game, as I mentioned, uh, Texas had uh, a nice lead going into the final two minutes uh, right before halftime here as they, they go on a nice little run, move it out to uh, <clears throat> excuse me, move it out to a, an eight-point lead, 39-31. And it's look at Bruce Weber calls a timeout, and you're thinking, okay, let's Let's keep this manageable going into halftime. And it's not a whole lot, but K-State goes on a little 4-0 run uh, going right into halftime. Down by four and a half. At that point, feel still pretty good. This Texas team is not necessarily a prolific offensive team. They shot the ball well uh, in the first half, I believe, at one point making eight of nine field goals in a row. But they lived at the free throw line. And with the fouls, of course, starting over in the second half, you knew they were going to have to uh, provide some consistent offense. And uh, at kind of at the end of the first half, one thing I wanted to uh, mention, and I know uh, it's been brought up by, by several folks as they've, as they've you know, looked at this game and during the game, was Bruce Weber mixing in a little zone. And I thought that that was really a nice move. And... Uh, allowed K-State to get some stops and, and even get some, uh, not just stops, but turnovers, uh, which led to some transition points for the Cats. And, and you know that Bruce Weber's not going into a zone, um, you know, unless he really needs to. And I think we, we reached that point and with the injury to Cardi, realizing how shorthanded we were against a very athletic Texas team, up against foul trouble, uh, hedging that high pick and roll that they were killing us in the first mm-hmm. half, yeah. um, I think, you know, a testament to Bruce. I know I was following the game really close, and I was getting frustrated with how we were getting beat on that pick and roll, and they were we were hedging so hard. Um, but I thought we, Bruce did a good job of going to the zone protecting Mac. Uh, I think he was crucial for the win. Exactly. Out of, out of foul trouble on the floor because, quite frankly, when uh, Strauss, Levi Stalker, came in, he was um, – outman just athletically against that Texas front line. Well, and one thing I do want to mention, I think it's a really good point by you there, Q, is Mayween, 35 minutes. Uh, a guy that all too often has come out of the game very early with foul trouble. When you have even a shorter bench than, than what uh, you already do with K-State, really only playing, I'll call it six and a half guys, whether uh, you know Stalker gets a few minutes um, a girl will get up to 10 or 12 minutes, but uh, with, with Jada being out, uh, everyone had to necess- – it wasn't necessarily looking to the bench necessarily to replace that production, but looking to the starters to be uh, – just add another bucket, uh, get an- another stop, whatever way it was to make up for that loss. And I thought Mayween, uh, very efficient offensively, and uh, was able to play uh, 35 minutes, which – uh, I believe is a season high for him. Well, and yeah, that's a good point because if you look at Jada's emergence, so really since the West Virginia game, 
when he, he started progressively getting more and more minutes, but those minutes weren't coming from the other guards. I mean, he wasn't really subbing in for Barry or Cam. Uh, the minutes he was getting were, were May Weems. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't Going a matter of... a little of, bit of a smaller lineup. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so I think when I heard that Jada was going to... Was going to be out for an extended period. It wasn't a matter of. I mean, everyone was saying, "Oh, McGurl's going to really have to step up. We might have to look to Sean Neal Williams," and that was true to a degree. But in my estimation, the guy who was going to have to step up to the plate and get more production and more minutes was going to be the bell cow. Um, and we saw that last night against Texas, where yeah, pretty efficient offensive night on the floor, which was easy to do for him because I think at least four of his. Shots were uh, dunks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's what he needs to do, and he needs he can't be a liability on defense, and he can't be mixing it up and turning it over uh, underneath the basket. He only had one turnover last night, which uh, for thirty five minutes is five of them against uh, Baylor. So much better in that regard, right? And so uh, it's I think K State's going to have to be looking to uh, feed their bell cow uh, throughout the duration of Jada's injury and. You know what? He's got three stomachs, man. That's right. He's when, to, the to bell... take a quip from Vern. Yeah, that's right. Shout out to Vern there. Good job by him there. Uh, but it, um, it was a great win for K State. Really, when you look at it, the first half. Let's let's talk a little bit about how K State had to kind of get forced into that zone. So this Texas team, when you look at their when you look at their starting five with Ozakowski, Hayes, Roach, Coleman, and Ramey. Every one of those guys, except for Hayes, is a threat to put the ball on on the floor. Even Osikowski, uh, he had a couple of times where he'd get the ball out at the three-point line and just back Dean Wade in. And they're able to, you know, they're able to beat you off the dribble and draw fouls, which really was pretty much their entire offense in the first half. They uh, they did a great job. They let. They lived at the line, 18 of 26 uh, from the line. K-State with only 12 free throws uh, attempted. But Texas was the far more aggressive team, and it was very obvious what their what their plan was to do, and it was that was to get the ball and drive the middle of the paint and either try to finish it at the rim or lob it up to either uh, Jackson Hayes or... Uh, Jericho Sims and and have them uh, slam at home, which when you look at, in terms of just the ability that those guys have uh, with with Sims and and Hayes uh, as you know, I mean they they're they're a couple of volleyball players out there almost in terms of their ability to just you know spike it at the at the rim necessarily, but those guards can get in the paint with the best of anyone in the conference. Oh, I think probably top to bottom the most athletic team in the Big 12, I think, will face all season, which posed quite the problem for us defensively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, Twitter and every social media was abuzz with how, you know, how bad our defense looked in the first half. But I think that's that's a product of just having extremely athletic guards and a really well-run offense in the first half when they were setting that high pick and roll and letting their supremely athletic bigs sprint to the rim. And I think that's where, you know, we were talking about the bell cow earlier I mean, that's not an easy thing to do for a 6'11 guy to be sprinting out to the three-point line, hedging, and sprinting back to, to you know... Protect to, the rim, To yeah. protect the rim, so... Sure. I mean, I think, you know, he did a fantastic job with that, and I know it's really frustrating to watch as a fan, but 
I guess a good game plan like that. It, it took a lot for Bruce and going into half, being down only I think four. Yep. When we were down eight, that was huge for us. Well, and alongside talking about Texas, Texas's athleticism, especially with them on the offensive side of the ball, uh, you look at with eight thirty six left in the first half. Xavier Sneed gets a second foul. Mm-hmm. Xavier Sneed, our most athletic player and one of our best defenders. Yeah, no question. And this is a game where, you know, Sneed was going to have to be on the court to be able to defend, help defend against some of those Texas players. K State was up twenty-two to twenty when Xavier Sneed picked up his second foul and uh, found themselves. Uh, that was the last lead of their of the half for K State. So. Really, until Xavier Sneed came back in in the second half, K-State was uh, facing a deficit the rest of the way. Yeah, thought it was a smart game plan by Texas, uh, of course, with a, with a shorter bench than we already do have. And when you look at the quality of the guys coming in, in terms of how they match up with some of these Texas players, uh, McGurl was, of course, hobbled uh, as, it's, as it's come out since with, uh, with the flu, as were, were several others on K-State's, but it sounded like he was maybe the most affected uh, by that. He still gives us 20 minutes and knocks down a, a big three, uh, Huge it, three. In, in that game. So, not I mean, only five points and, and not great. He wasn't great on defense, but a nice contribution nonetheless when, when K-State really needed uh, something from that bench. But the story of the game, as I mentioned, all five starters uh, in double figures: Mayween with 11, Wade with 12, Snead with Snead and Brown with both uh, 16 points, and uh, and Kamal Stokes with 11. Well-rounded, well-balanced attack for K-State, and you can't look past the shooting that K-State uh, had from behind the arc. Eight of 17 for 47 percent. If K-State doesn't shoot the ball that well, uh, they probably leave Austin with a loss. Well, and especially, I mean. That 47% shooting mark from three. Uh, Sneed and Stokes combined for six of ten. And so, I mean, uh, really it was those two guys who were doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Barry hit one of two, but Wade was 0 of three. And so it's not like everybody was shooting lights out last night uh, from three. But, uh, no, can't be overlooked that the three-point shooting when you – comes down to it that was uh that was the story last night and also just the high field goal percentage the k-state shot last night especially in the mid-range game guys coming in and being able to pull up and shoot from the elbow i mean we saw dean wade last night uh pass up a three-pointer uh pump faked and brought it right in to just around the free throw line and decided that he was gonna just pop there but uh that ability to make shots is something that uh, is going to be super beneficial to K-State uh, the rest of the way because obviously this team is uh, stifling a dominant team defensively. Um, and when they struggled this year, it's been solely because their offense hasn't been able to find the bottom of the basket. But if K-State's shooting at the clip that they shot against uh, Baylor, then or I'm sorry, against Texas, then uh, this team can go very, very far this season. I think one last point that I want to bring out is when Texas did go to their zone this game, we were able to slice that thing apart with Dean we at did. that high elbow. We did. Down to Mac on the baseline, and we were able to hit those jumpers to pull him out of it. And that was, 
I think another huge part for our success was being able, I, I think that two, three zone was a little easier for us to operate out of by getting the ball into Dean. And he had mm-hmm. six assists in the game. So I think he's got the ability to pass and see the court. And I think he's going to be crucial for us without that slashing ability that Cardi presented to us. You know, it's kind of interesting when you think about both uh, games against Texas this season, the second half of both these games. So in the game where Texas won in Manhattan, uh, Texas scored 42 points in the second half, shot uh, 81% from behind the arc. Uh, Jace Febris, who was 5 of 5, was the, the main culprit to that, but shot 60% uh, from the field in the second half of that game in Manhattan, which they which they cruised to an easy win. Uh, but K-State kind of returned returned the favor, not as not as prolific as uh, not as prolific as Texas was that night, but uh, 56% from behind the, or from the field, uh, six of nine from from the free throw line, four of ten from behind the arc. The second half was really the the uh, the swing in both games. Of course, Texas was a little bit better from uh, from three, and that really blew it open in the earlier game. But a strong second-half performance uh, in both games uh, that K-State and Texas have played proved to be the difference. So, Drew, is there anything else you'd like to add on this on this Texas game before we wrap it up? No, just a, a gutsy win, and I think our lineup without Cardi last night, uh, whether it was due to the flu illness or what, but it it was a solid win, but it, it shows that K-State's margin for air out of their starting five here a little bit slimmer without uh, Jada back there because all it took was one dud uh, performance out of our starting five, and uh, this could have been a different game. Yep, and I'll tell you the other thing, too, is I thought the defense in the second half, which was more more man defense than zone. The zone wasn't as, as prevalent. Um, the, the, it was really definitely a change-up. More than, yeah, a situational thing. But the defense really clamped down on Texas, uh, only scoring 25 points. Uh, the Longhorns did in, in the second half, and you look at their you look at their um, their numbers here: six of 20 from the field, 30 percent; two of 11 from behind the arc, uh, 11 of 14 at the free throw line. So they lived at the free throw line, uh, similar to how they did in the first half. But you think about that. Th- uh, six of those were off of fouling a three-point shooter. So K-State, great adjustments in the second half to really adjust how they're going to play that ball screen and really limited Texas a lot in the second half. And it was a great performance by K-State. So that will do it here for the Baylor review and the Texas review uh, on this week's edition of the short side option. When we come back, We'll take a look at the 2019 recruiting class uh, with National Signing Day, the second uh, national signing period uh, of the 2019 recruiting cycle has, uh, has, has closed, and K-State welcomes in 22 new players to the roster. We'll be back after this to let you know what you need to know about the 2019 recruiting class on the short side option. All right, we are back on the Short Side Option Podcast, and our recruiting guru, 
Quentin Hoover here is going to let you know what you need to know about this 2019 recruiting class for Kansas State. Uh, I misspoke a little bit earlier. We have 21 new recruits plus two transfers. So a total of 23 new additions to the K-State roster. Bad job by me earlier, but good job by me right there. Well, number four, my man. That's right, baby. We've been saying we've been saying that though too often. So I I'm, need to take it to the next level. Take it to heart. Exactly. That's right. Take it to the limit. Hey, number one commitment. That's right. That's right. It's a good point by you there. So uh, it, it's a class that you know K State's traditionally in the bottom third of the Big Twelve recruiting rankings in terms of. Uh, by rivals, 24-7. 24-7 looks on this class as the 8th best in the Big 12 at 62nd, and rivals has us at 68th, uh, which is uh, tied for ninth as you have it here in the Big 12. It's a class that when you look at it, there. if you're like me, you look at it and you see some, see some potential bright spots. But I'm one of those folks that's never going to get too crazy about some of these players just because once they get to campus, it seems like it's in past years, well, congratulations, but unless you're one or two players, you're not going to see the field until your third year here after a redshirt year. So it's tough to really get too – it's tough to get really too excited, but maybe this year might be a little bit different. I know Kleiman has talked about how he – hopes to play them in four games and take advantage of that redshirt rule. So, uh, Q, I'm going to just kind of ask you to give me your impressions of this class and, and kind of what sticks out to you. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of carry the, the bar over from what you were talking about, this isn't a class that's going to whine and dine in 60-90. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty um, solid class when you look at the numbers and how we disperse out the scholarships. Um, and there's not a lot of flash in terms of some of the rankings and the positions, but I think we filled a tremendous amount of need in some major positions. And uh, like you said with climate, I think there's a bigger focus on relationships and and making this a more focal part of our program moving forward, uh, which everyone knows recruiting is the lifeblood of any program and any prominent team in college football can prove that out with who they've signed and how they've gone about doing it. But um, I was really impressed with how climate was able to put together, number one, his staff, and then being able to identify key current commits that we already had and then going out and kind of set, setting a blaze, you know, the recruiting trail and how they were flying all over the country, establishing new recruiting bases based on their coaches. And, um, you know, I'd like to kind of start to break down position by position. You know, I think the one position that everyone knew about going into this offseason, which just recently we found out about Mike McCoy, um, you know, having to medically retire uh, is the running back position. And we were able to go out and, and secure three commits uh, out of the high school ranks um, with um, some really quality um, talent that I think might be a little bit undervalued in, in the rankings. And, you know, other people that are K-State aficionados and recruiting and probably echo that same sentiment. But um, And also being able to add a really quality grad transfer out of Ball State with James Gilbert, which I think – is going to provide an immediate um, position of need there. Yeah, absolutely. The running back position, I believe with Barnes leaving to go test the NFL waters and then with McCoy's status, 
you can call it uncertain. You can call it, and of course, he's since retired. But uh, throughout the the 2018 season, the opinion was it was going to be a long shot that he would ever play again, mm-hmm. and to have literally nothing in terms of scholarship running backs is an egregious job by the previous staff. Oh, it's. I don't think you – I mean, the cupboard wasn't bare. The cupboard was damn near just tore out of the kitchen. Yeah, and it, exactly. And it was – and, again, just a terrible job by the previous staff. And, and I think that's where Kleiman gets the biggest kudos here of, of going out and, and putting numbers, not even just at running back, but I think also at fullback. I mean, just to kind of start off, I mean, just the specific name, starting at fullback with uh, a name that people in this area know, Jax Deneen out of Lawrence Free State. Um, you know, was ranked as the number one fullback in the nation, which I, I don't know how much credence you give to that. There's not a lot of fullbacks in high school or even college football. No, it's a big deal. <laughs> it's when, a big deal. Whenever you got number one next to your name, you're, you, that's, that's what you like to see there. Yeah, whether it's a fullback or a long snapper. That's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, what was it, Corey Adams? Never missed, sna- never had a bad snap in his entire career at K-State? Number one, baby. Hey, kudos to the recruiting there's hey. like you over here who were able to identify him and just say, oh, this guy is the real deal. You know what that is? It's grind. It's brother. grind. And we, we admire that great uh, a great deal. So, Q, let's just start on the offensive side of the football. K-State brings in two uh, quarterbacks, Chris Heron and uh, Jaron Lewis. Uh, Heron, who was a, a commit from the previous regime uh, under Coach Snyder, uh, Jaron Lewis, a North Dakota, co- State, yeah, North Dakota State commit uh, from nearby Columbia, Missouri. What do you kind of see in those guys? Uh, Heron, definitely more of a – I think they're both dual threats. Uh, Heron, I don't really know if he's going to stick at the quarterback position, but just tell me what you think about those guys. Um, again, I, I agree with you. I don't think that a quarterback will be a long-term position for Chris Heron, but he definitely um, – is an athlete that I think that the, this coaching staff valued. And I think his early on commitment to Colin Klein and Bill Snyder was something that they wanted to secure um, out of a really talent-rich area in Houston. Um, high school stats for his senior year were not great. Uh, film on him doesn't show a real knack for, for throwing um, accuracy or, or power. But I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of comparisons that people were making during his commitment, you know, to L. Roberson. I think that was a little far-fetched. I think a, a more equal comp would probably be a Daniel Sams um, for a lot of people that remember him uh, from years past. Pretty slight of build, too. Yeah. I mean, not a real... I mean, Daniel Sams, not, he wasn't exactly a big bruiser either, but in some of those games, especially in the 2013 season, he... Took some licks. He, took, he ran the ball 20, 25 times a game and Really was the offense in a few of those. So and and I think it is important to look at the quarterback position too, with how Kleiman has utilized them in North Dakota State. I think people, you know, K State fans watched Easton Stick and how that offense performed in the in the playoffs. And I think that uh, there's definitely a, a sense of that dual threat that you got to have running this offense. So I think there's potential here with Jaron and even with. Jaron Lewis, and it's really easy to kind of dog that signing because, you know, it was a North Dakota State commit. But uh, our coaching staff had even come out, Colin Klein, saying that he had camped with K-State, and they were pretty impressed with the tools that he had. But having a commit with Heron already in the fold, um, I think just... And that's the other thing, and this is one point I want to make real quick, is if there's one position you can't have enough of, it's quarterback. Yeah. I mean, also, too, I should say... (laughs) 
We're not that far removed from from yeah. Bazooka Joe. Yeah, exactly. Offense. And Cody Cook, who God bless him, but was a uh, not what, a quarterback. No, he was a he was a wide <laughs> receiver, and he's being pressed into action because we literally don't have any other scholarship wide receivers or what or any scholarship quarterbacks. So you have to go to to your best wide receiver. It was just an absolute mess. Yeah, well, and I think to be bowl eligible on that in that year completely <laughs> is mind numbing. That still. was a miracle. Um, but ideally, K State's not going to have to rely on its second and third string quarterbacks uh, as often, if ever, under Kleiman, because I I don't foresee him running that same kind of quarterback power to the degree that. Uh, K-State fans have been used to that constantly put the quarterback in jeopardy of being injured. Um, Quentin, I want to move on a little bit here to the running backs. We touched on it a little bit. Uh, let's let's start out with Jax Deneen. My, per, my view of this signing was this guy's kind of a bull. Uh, whether K-State utilizes him as a fullback proper or more of an H-back type of guy, uh, but really the value in my, uh, from my view with Jackson Ean is that he gets us into free state, um, especially before 2020, to kind of enrich that pipeline a little bit more. But is, is Jackson Ean going to be anything beyond that for K-State? Is he, is he going to see field, do you think? Oh, I, I actually believe, uh, and none of us have seen the offense that Kleiman's un, uh, unleashing yet, but I think we can look at what he's done in North Dakota State and where they utilize the fullback. And I think, you know, Jackson Inkate, like you said, came from Lawrence Free State and their head coach Bob Lisher referred to him as a bowling ball with knives when running the football. That sounds that sounds so, like something I could get on board yeah. with. It sounds like a bad bowling ball. Also. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying, I, the hair on Drew's back is tingling right now. Yeah. Wait a second, that's not going to slide down the lane at all. It's just going to damage the lane. But... But to more of your point, he's a relationship that I think was integral for securing the the signing of Keenan Garber, a wide receiver, as well as getting our foot in the door for a couple really prominent recruits in the 2020 class. Um, so moving on from fullback, um, I think the three names that we have are you know C.J. Clyde Price, which any guy named Clyde you know gets my vote for getting in this class. Absolutely, um, out of North Kansas City High School. Ran for over 3,000 yards. Um, a little bit of a qualifying issue, but I think that he's a guy that kind of has the mold of the Alex Barnes, James Johnson, just monster running back that we've had in the past. Um, and even what Mike McCoy was, you know, before having to retire. Uh, and then and he's got some size, too. I mean, yeah. am, am I completely out of bounds to maybe even make a Daniel Thomas comparison out of uh, him or like maybe like a Scobie, or is he not quite that? Uh... Drew, I'm going to blow the whistle on you. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think he's quite the Daniel Thomas. You got to uh, rein him back in. You got to <laughs> rein him back in. But I did give you James Johnson. I'll give you that in Barnes. But, uh, but, but I think from watching his film. Come on, call him Daniel Thomas, will you? <laughs> nope, Drew, uh, I won't. He's, he's put Deluge, nope. All right. Um, but I think, you know, he's that big bruiser back. And then as you kind of move down the line, we've got a really fast straight line guy in Thomas Grayson that came out of Booker T. Washington, uh, which I think a lot of K-State fans know that that's the alma mater of the Lockett family. Um, at least Tyler coming out a, a very prominent Oklahoma school and put up over a thousand yards of offense. Um, pretty inconsistent with his film. And we've had 
a couple of different analysts come out and say that he's flashed. He was at one time a Nebraska commit. Yep. Um, and, mm -hmm. and so you know, with a, a pretty impressive offer list, but I think the inconsistency and maybe getting passed over kind of hurt him. Um, but he offers a different level of, of explosion, straight line speed than what C.J. Price gives you. Well, and as we mentioned, with K-State's complete lack of bodies at the running back position, they bring in – three high school running backs as well as um, the J James Gilbert, the grad transfer from Ball State. This looks to me a little bit as, hey, we got to get just some bodies in here. We'll see what sticks. And But at an immediate need for K-State. There's freshmen it, that are going to need to play. You, you get the – you have to give the staff a lot, the new staff a lot of credit in just being able to have a, a full running back room uh, as we get into uh, spring practice here uh, before all too long. So uh, let's stay on the offensive side of the ball. Well, one more, oh, one more question here. Yeah, well, we we've overlooked James Gilbert a little bit, uh, our uh, Ball State grad transfer. Is that the guy you see getting the load of the carries next year? I believe so, and and. Messingham's already come out in interviews and saying that he's, he's enrolled, he's been working out with the team, and they've been pretty impressed with him. And even Brian Anderson, the running back coach, you know, saw film of him while at Ball State and, and knew that he was an option. I think the staff was pretty excited about him. And, and even Joe Irvin, the kid that's coming out of South Carolina, which is a kind of a blended back between all three of these guys that we've just talked about. So, again, hitting the position with numbers, that's exactly what we needed for this class to help bridge going into the next and year. And not only just the numbers, but it – you know, from your from your breakdown here, it sounds like there's a good mix of, of style of running back too. So you don't just have the same type of back, uh, you know, throughout the roster. So that's that's a good job by them there. So let's go look at the wide receivers. Uh, another one of the uh, Lawrence Free State High School uh, standouts that is part of this class is Keenan Garber, uh, three-star recruit out of Free State. We're able to hold off KU at the very end as his recruitment uh, got pretty interesting uh, once Les Miles got on board at Kansas. What do you see from him? And then uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you talk on him, and then I want to get into another one here. No, Keenan Garber, uh, which is actually the highest-ranked signee for us uh, on the 247 website, um, I think he's a walking touchdown. Uh, and he was been a, a long-time K-State commit, and I don't think it was necessarily Les Miles coming in, but it was the loss of Bill Snyder and not knowing what sure. the coaching situation was going to be, which kind of put us in flux with him. But a guy that has tremendous ball skills and a, a very fluid athlete. Uh, Lawrence Free State blew a lot of people out this year, so his stats might not bear it out, but I think he had over 20 touchdowns on just like under 30-something touches, which is just insane. Wow. But I think, you know, in my opinion, one of the highest potential guys for our team and on that offensive side of the ball. And, again, a huge relationship to have with Lawrence Free State. So let's move on to uh, Joshua Youngblood here, um, wide receiver prospect out of Tampa, Florida, two-star recruit, 5.4. You may not think much about this, but – uh, Coach Kleiman, uh, in, in a couple interviews that I had seen, referred to this guy as steal the class. Uh, tremendous speed, and I know you feel a little bit of the same way. Yeah, I, th I think this guy, you know, he's been a quarterback at Berkeley Prep and down in Tampa, Florida, which is, again, an area that Messingham prides himself on as a recruiting base. 
in his film, he is just blowing by people out of the backfield. And, and again, it's going to take some time to refine some of the wide receiver skill sets, uh, running the route tree and learning an offense. But the natural athleticism, change of pace, and agility that he has on film is pretty impressive. And maybe the, the talent that he was playing against wasn't great, but he made people look like fools on the field when he was running the football. I think he's an early candidate for uh, the all-speed merchant team. And that's a... An honor you want to have. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the most highly thought of teams out there. And uh, we'll, we'll be sure to bring you our all-speed merchant team as, as that develops. But certainly a contender uh, right off the bat uh, is Mr. Youngblood. Yep. And as a class as a whole, I think that embodies what Kleiman was going for as we continue to look. Speed is at a premium in the Big 12. And as we continue to touch on these positions, we're going to see that being a um, something that comes up more often than not. One other guy I want to hit on as, as a pass catcher, uh, Connor Fox out of San Antonio, Texas. Uh, really a receiving tight end. Definitely fits more of that bill. 6'5", um, 6'5", 225 is what he's listed at. Pretty impressive frame for a pass catcher. However, uh, if you followed K-State football over the last 20 years, you know we've thrown <laughs> it to the tight end at grand total of seven times so you wonder how he fits in this offense and even too uh you know of course with the new regime uh, the new regime with Chris Kleiman it looks to be more the same in terms of how they view the tight end as a pass catcher I believe I saw a quote that um he views tight ends as as wanting them to be almost glorified tackles which uh is right in line with the K-State tradition that he inherited there so Maybe this is a guy that, instead of a tight end, really should be looked at more of almost a, a, just a receiver, somewhere you can work in the slot um, and, and find some matchups to get him involved. Yeah, he doesn't fit the tight end mold, at least what we've seen out of Kleiman's offense at NDSU. Um, being a bigger body tight end that you can use along the line, pretty slight of frame. Uh, pretty impressive high school stats coming out of Texas. Uh, he stayed firm with his commitment to the Cats even after the regime change, uh, but I think we're gonna we're gonna see that bear out with a lot of our bigger receivers on the roster like a Sebastian Taylor and even in, uh, Nick Leonard's coming back from injury. Uh, the tight end position is gonna be a really interesting one to see how they utilize it and what kind of personnel we we put in that position. Yeah, Sebastian Taylor would. I mean, hey, don't get me started. Sebastian Taylor at tight end is a dream. Well, and then he also had a, a who could forget his touchdown he had against Iowa State in the last game of the season, which we hadn't seen him since middle of the season. So uh, some late momentum there for Sebastian yeah. Taylor. So not not to be forgotten there. All right. Well, let's look on ahead to the uh, the Hog Mollies. Where's the beef? Oh, I smell it. Uh, uh, yeah, we got a pair of uh, big boys. Uh, let's start off with, and I have a 50-50 chance of getting his name right, and I, I've never quite, is it Stangy? Is it Stange? I think it, more like a stain with a soft G Stang? in it. Sting? Yeah, who maybe? knows? Who knows? Uh, maybe he's related to the Scorpion, because he's stinging people. <laughs> Something to look at. Some of those defensive uh, tackles in the Big 12 looking to get stung well, by right, Stang. I'll get back in the books and find that out. <laughs> yeah, let's, we'll, we'll bring you that we'll answer. Wait for the, we'll wait for the media guy to come out and get the, get the proper <laughs> pronunciation from you there. But he's, but, a, uh, he's a big old hog molly from uh, the Lone Star State, 6'4", 272. Uh, I believe he's a legacy at K-State. Is that right? Yep. His uh, dad, Russ Stang, 
played at K-State back in the, I believe, late 80s. And who could forget that yeah, just, career? Absolutely. Uh, we haven't got to him yet, but that's a Wildcat, wildcat legend. legend in the future. Yeah, yeah he's, he embodies everything about a Wildcat legend there, folks. Yeah, not a not a huge body at 6'4", 270, but that's about what you're looking at for a lot of high school guys coming out. Uh, the, I think the most impressive thing about his um, his portfolio to this point has been that he's played alongside every position in the offensive line for his high school. And I think having that kind of ability to, to switch positions has proven to be pretty valuable for K-State. Think about Cody Whitehair, Dalton Risner. Um, I think that's something that any offensive line coach and, wants. And even that's was when Charlie Dickey, who of course is now the offensive line coach at Oklahoma State, um, that was always kind of the message that we'll play the five best. We'll find a position for you. And, you know, even th- let's let's look back. B.J. Finney, he would swing out to tackle when we even had to have him, I believe, in 2014 against West Virginia when we suffered some, some injuries there. Anytime you have that kind of versatility really makes things a lot easier uh, for the coaching staff to, to massage that because injuries happen, I mean, especially when you want to be a physical team that runs the ball primarily. You can never have enough versatility. Yep, especially in this offense. We talked about running backs being key. Offensive line, I think we're going to see that play out over the next couple of years being a critical position of need. And I, I guess moving on from, from Trevor Stang into the other offensive lineman signing and, and Taylor Poitier. Uh Ha-ha. Ha-ha-ha. Yeah. A out of Bishop Meage High School. A late offer uh, right before signing day. The only other high major offer he had was Wyoming. Uh, but looking at the film, I'm probably more impressed and, and more excited about the potential that he has just an extremely nasty, physical offensive lineman playing tackle at, at, at the prestigious Bishop Meage. Sorry, Drew. Um, but uh, I think that he – there's some people that have even suggested that he could play out on the defensive line through, by the end of his career at K-State. Oh, a little Damian McIntosh yeah. style action there. Okay. Nice pull. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, again, small offensive line class. We uh, we return a lot of offensive linemen outside Dalton Risner, but um, those will be two guys that they're going to be looking for for depth and continued development. Well, let's look at the defensive side of the ball here. Uh a couple different guys that uh, that come in that provide what and this is something we mentioned briefly on on last week's edition of the short side option, uh, but going out and being able to get some real big bodies on the defensive line is it's always something that K State they always have usually one guy that's pretty darn good. And then just not a whole lot else at the defensive tackle position. Uh, you can go back to, you know, Travis Britz was uh, was a standout. Will Geary, of course, was a standout. Violet Tui. Violet, but and then you look at that 2012 team, where you had Britz as, as a uh, underclassman that was contributing, uh, but also with Violet Tui and Adam Davis. Was on Ad, that Adam team. Davis and having a little bit more versatility here uh, on that 2012 team, which. Uh, you know, was one of the best teams here in recent memory for Kansas State. But uh, they go out and they get uh, a couple different guys uh, on the defensive line. Tell me kind of what you see from these guys and maybe which one you're most excited about. Uh, I guess across the defensive line, you know, some, to steal a line from Steve Adazio, we had to go out and get some dudes. 
I mean, you got to find defensive linemen out of the high school ranks that can step in and be able to provide depth. And the first guy off the bus right now, a big signing, Matthew Pola Mayal out of Chandler, Arizona, a guy with another really impressive offer list. Uh, considered at one point in Nebraska, you know, heavy lean. Uh, guy that walks in 6'3", 300, uh, played in the Polynesian Bowl, uh, outstanding junior tape, and uh, I think he suffered a little bit from transferring schools his senior year, and maybe his tape didn't grade out well, but a guy that's coming out of high school, an 18-year-old that's already got the, the frame and build that you can build on, and especially if we're running a 4-3 defense, you've got to have that nose tackle be a, a dude that can take up gaps, and I think he, he definitely presents that um, that opportunity for us. And then um, right across, another potential nose tackle signee, a local guy, Cooper Beebe, here out of uh, Wyandotte County at Piper High School. Another kid that measured out at 6'3", 320 pounds. Uh, again, a two-star ranked by rivals, but heavy interest from Minnesota, KU. Uh, other Power 5 programs were actually deterred after he committed really early yeah, he was, onto the Cats. I, I believe he was the first commit, yes. correct? Yeah, so he's been, he's, you know, uh, the Piper Pirates, of course, wear purple, and he bleeds purple as well as as uh, the longest commit for Kansas State. Uh, and then there's one more uh, along the defensive line, and this is a guy that really intrigues me. Yeah, Kenny Gibbons, uh, late co- commitment, uh, longtime Toledo commitment leading up into signing day. Uh, Joe Klanderman, his area base for recruiting is the Chicago area. And he, this kid reigns from Hubbard, Illinois, uh, back where uh, D. Louis. Uh, had a stopping grounds, but again, a guy that's looked at as more of a project, a developmental guy that uh, I think put on around 30 to 35 pounds oh, really? during wow. his senior year and after the season to where initially he was weighing around 240s, around 275 right now. And I think that they look at him as being that strong side defensive end or, or three technique D tackle to, to really, you know, provide some athleticism and, and some real girth along the defensive line. Well, and my sources in Chicago, too, are saying that over the last couple of weeks, he's continuing to grow. <laughs> he could be 400 pounds by the start of the season. Yeah, they are, just, they are just feeding him, and he's on a strict diet, and, and they say he's just getting bigger and bigger. And so look for him to put on, to be even, just be enormous by the time he gets to campus next year. Maybe the, the name The Fridge will be a, a, a fitting name for a guy from Chicago. That's right, Mr. Perry. Well, and I mean, when you look at him, I mean, 6'4", 272, that's what you want to see out of out of a defensive end guy that can, can get after the, the pass rusher, and especially if he can provide some good run support out of that defensive end position too, yep. not just be a pass rusher. That was one of the things that always stuck with me about Jordan Willis is not only a great pass rusher, and you know, set the edge, but set the edge, and that that makes you such a huge difference for you uh, when stopping the run. So, lots of like there, I think, uh, when you look along the defensive line. And we'll move on to the uh, second layer of the lynch mob. Uh, only one guy listed at linebacker in this class, and you know, with the way defenses are shifting to challenge offenses, especially in the Big Twelve. You see a lot of hybrid type of guys, that guys that could play, uh, you know, defensive back or just be a smaller linebacker. But uh, Khalid Duke out of Gainesville, Georgia, he's a guy with some size. Uh, what do you what do you make out of him as, in terms of anchoring the defense in the uh, second layer? Uh, I look at Khalid Duke as a pretty intriguing prospect coming out of a, a military academy in Georgia. Not really 
highly regarded in terms of rankings. But when you put on the tape of this kid, he's got an ex- a huge framing. Comes in at about 6'4", 220 already. Has a lot of speed. He has actually their best receiver. Um, and I think he won all-league conference at receiver as well as defensive end. Uh, but he projects more of the linebacker for us. And I think when you look at him, I, it just reeks of what Elijah Lee looked like coming out of Blue Springs uh, a few years back in 2015. Uh, I think his change of pace and, and his ability to, to play and, and sideline to sideline is what they're looking for. And I think with Scotty Hazleton's defense, you look at what he had at Wyoming, their linebackers were big guys that could fly around. And uh, I think, again, a bit of a project. It's going to take time to put some muscle on and, and continue to keep up that speed. But really intriguing prospect. Uh, the only downside is that you know he's the only linebacker yeah. commit that we had and definitely a position of need. Uh, most of our roster going into the 2019 season are seniors. So it'll be imperative that his development uh, continues to grow over the next year. Well, and getting back to what I was talking about a little earlier, do you see that... I mean, just looking over the landscape of college football, do you see the position of quote-unquote linebacker really just kind of, I don't want to say disappearing, but blending in with uh, really the secondary and guys that have the ability to cover uh, receivers kind of all over the place, especially when, you know, and this is the age of the spread, where you're not going to get a Jeff Kelly type in there who's just an enormous bruiser uh, who can take up space in the middle, you're going to have to have guys who uh, have to surrender some size and some ability to defend the power run game to really be able to cover some of those routes because offenses are putting pressure on linebackers. Yeah, I think that's important with just knowing that we're going to be running a 4-3 defense, that your linebackers have got to be able to cover in space. And you're not, you don't need a hulking middle linebacker uh, to be on, in the, set, the focus of your defense. So I think he brings a lot of those intangibles. And again, it's more of a, it's not really a position anymore. It's more of a title, being a linebacker. You see more safeties coming up in the box, guys that are that are playing more of the nickel and dime defenses. Uh, but I think he, he provides valuable depth and also someone that they're going to look on for that, you know, having that athletic build. I uh, I saw our friend Ian Boyd uh, talking the the program, other, right, uh, talking about uh, the other day about how he he's henceforth going to start defining defensive backs is people who cover uh, vertical routes and can really cover everything over the top. And uh, linebackers is people who don't do that, is, is non-defensive linemen who cover the underneath routes. And I thought that was a really uh, clever uh, point he made just because uh, linebackers are changing. And uh, to that point, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the defensive backs, our secondary guys. We Signed a whole host of them. Um, are there any here that uh, stick out to you that uh, could be the linchpin for the lynch mob? Uh, I think there's a, an immediate need being filled with uh, our JUCO safety. So we've had five defensive back signees, four of them at the high school level. And Jonathan Alexander, out of um, he came out of Kilgore Community College in Texas, who's already enrolled at K-State, uh, a bigger, rangy safety at 6'3", 220, that Kleiman's already you know, listed as a physical specimen during their workouts. Someone that I think fits more of that Emmanuel Lemur, Danzel McDaniel kind of defensive back that's an imposing figure you can bring up and jam at the line of scrimmage. Uh, pretty good stats coming out out of his, uh, out of his sophomore season. Uh, All-conference honors, 
Um, nothing that really jumps out at you, but I think he provides that athleticism you need at the back end. Um, and then starting off with our high school players, you know, uh, they came from about everywhere you can think of. From Yeah, that was one thing I was going to mention, too. We it, it seems like this has been a more of a national type uh, type recruiting effort. Yeah, well, I think we're casting our net a bit wider under climate. I think, you know, he talked about that after being hired, having connections and, and relationships across the country. And, you know, I, I for one, wasn't, you know, I wasn't completely sold on that, but it, it's kind of bearing out with how we've been able to go out across the country. Uh, Hammond, Louisiana for Tyrone Lewis, down into the Metroplex, Bishop Dunn uh, High School, Long Beach Poly High School out in California. I, I can't remember any, in my recent memory, anyone out of Los Angeles outside of the JUCO route mm-hmm. that we've been able yeah, to pull out in, of a high school, yeah. Uh, for Kenyon Reed. So uh, across the defensive backs, this again, another position much like running back where we needed numbers, we needed for depth for the coming years, and also speed is a premium. And I think if you listen to what Van Malone, the defensive, you know, the cornerbacks coaches preached, you know, we need dogs. We need guys that can come in, are fast, willing to fight, and and judging by some of the tape that we've seen here, just starting off with Tyrone Lewis out of Louisiana, out of out of the boot, um, really physical safety, aggressive tackler, um, lacks all the refinement at this point. But you know, we look at what Eli Walker and, yeah. and and the the best of Eli Walker this past season. That's what you can hope for in terms of size and just hitting ability. So with Lewis, does he project more as a as a safety or necessarily a guy that maybe? you could throw in uh, as maybe a cover corner as well. Uh, at this point, I would say that safety is probably okay. more in line with what he projects at. Um, you know, one guy I was going to say too is at the quarterback position was Danzel McGainel. It's a name that you brought up recently. Uh, I don't know if he was a great cover corner uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but... In Norman, Oklahoma, he was. He was there. He has a little yeah. five-large <laughs> pick six against old Trevor Knight there. As K State won that game, thirty-one thirty. I may add. Uh, thank you, Michael Honeycutt, for that one. Uh, but uh, this this class, as you mentioned, uh, we do go through a couple different areas here. One guy, and I, I want you to cover him as much as you want here on all of them. But one guy that I'm very impressed that K State was able to go out and beat, uh, you know, a local power with with UCLA, and although not necessarily a local power on the football field, but uh, prestigious name brand program uh, for Kenyon Reed out of Long Beach. D'Lo, I think we might have another. Uh, yeah, uh, he's a speed so, merchant for sure. Uh, another consideration for speed merchant team. Yeah, I think the value that this coaching staff has put on, you know, track athletes, guys that are running 10-7, 10-8, 100-yard dashes, uh, they were really quick to call out those stats at the signing day press conference. Yeah, I like that. And Kenyon Reed is definitely, he fits the speed merchant billing. Again, only a two-star recruit and really slight of frame, but someone that you know gets an offer from UCLA. Iowa State offered him late in the game, uh, but we were able to secure his commitment via Van Malone. And I think you can't throw enough numbers at defensive backs with the pace of play and what we see in the Big 12. It's crucial that you find guys that have that coverability and that speed. And you know, moving on from him, even into the couple of Texas guys we signed, and the fastest guy that they believe they have on, you know, coming into the roster for this next season is William Jones out of Mansfield Summit. Uh, he was actually a late signing day flip, That's or right. on the early signing period from Cal mm-hmm. to us via Blake Seiler, um, someone that they they really they, 
he's via the number 57 cornerback in the country via ESPN. Great stats when he was playing at Mansfield High School. A, a guy that, you know, in my opinion, straight line speed again, kind of what we looked at with a Morgan Burns, uh, with mm-hmm. a Duke Shelley, someone that you can fit at a return position and be able to provide immediate results as a true freshman, redshirt freshman. Um, and then the last the last secondary player, Logan Wilson out of Bishop Dunn High School, um, a bigger kind of cornerback, maybe safety range, 5'11", 170. Um, you know, I think that he's someone that fits more, you know, what you see with a bigger corner or a safety in like a Kendall Adams mold or a Dante Barnett, someone that can come in. And he's actually been, you know, of this entire class, the biggest cheerleader for continuing mm-hmm. recruits and pushing forward to the 2020 class. And then, of course, our uh, our second transfer, uh, Marcus Hayes, out of New Mexico. Uh, is that somebody who could come in and, and help out uh, depth-wise, or do you, do you foresee him getting some uh, action on the field this year? So he will have to sit out uh, this oh, 2019 season transferring from I'm New Mexico. I'm used to grad transfers. Yeah, so uh, again, not immediate need, but someone that, again, filling out that depth uh, he led the nation in punt return yardage uh, as a redshirt freshman last year in New Mexico. Again, uh, not a lot of returns and, and not someone that, you know, came highly acclaimed uh, out of high school as a two-star athlete out of around the Chicago, Illinois area. And, um, again, really interested to see what his development continues to look like with another year under uh, a Power 5 um, strength and conditioning program and getting used to our defense. But, Again, the needs across the board, you know, as a whole for this class, I think we're hit uh, as a bridge. Um, you know, for the defensive backs and running backs, it's going to be crucial that those guys play, play early, and, and figure it out relatively quickly. All right. Well, let's uh, let's kind of wrap this up here a little bit. Oh wait, the... we're not we're not going to touch on uh, our guy Ty Zittner. Well, I mean, he's a kicker, and I don't want him to take Blake Lynch's spot. So maybe if we don't talk about him, okay. No, let's let's go ahead and talk about it. He deserves he deserves. Why don't you read off the stat line, Drew? <clears throat> Ty Zintner at a Butler County Community College was nine of sixteen uh, kicking, and he drained thirty-one of thirty-seven extra points. Wait a minute, and wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I seeing this right? He was the number one JUCO kicker in America. Via ESPN, yes. What a joke. <laughs> when I think of uh, Juco kickers, I just think of that guy from Last Chance <laughs> oh. U last year. Just the guy who just wanted to hang out and smoke and play video games. Well, whatever. Whatever works for you. Well, <laughs> Welcome, you know, Ty. <laughs> but I, I, think I, do, uh, I think I do recall, though, in, in, all, in on a little bit more of a serious note here, uh, not to, to just paint all Juco kickers with a broad brush here, but I do recall when he did commit to Kansas State back uh, kind of earlier in the recruiting uh, period, that he has a pretty strong leg and maybe fits the role of more of a kickoff specialist, which uh, I thought Mitch uh, Lockbeeler had done pretty well of uh, in past years, but it, it seems like that might be more of a, of a role for him because with Lynch, you, you have a pretty accurate kicker already. Yeah, and again, we don't want to brush over because it is a, a crucial position. We know what... You know, a bad kicking game can oh, do yeah. to a program. So look, look no further than 2002. Yep, and, and so I think <laughs> yeah. it's it's crucial whether it's a kickoff specialist or he actually served as a punter as well at Butler, and okay. he averaged just under 40 yards a punt. So maybe that's more of the direction we're looking as as we continue uh, our special teams tradition of sorts. But I, I I think it's there's value to be placed on on the special teams 
All right, Drew, we got the kicker cover. Good. Are you happy? Good. Yeah. I've got a very that? flattering uh, breakdown yeah. of Ty Zittner. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, we'll look at uh, now just kind of the overview of the 2019 recruiting class. Q, I'm going to ask you just a couple things here. In your view, in, in, in the Q index here, so to speak, who's the best signee in this class? I think if we're looking at the biggest signee uh, in terms of what jumped out to me, Matthew Pulamal at a at a position of defensive tackle, being able to sign a kid that had the offer list, you know, at one point of USC, Arizona schools, Nebraska, um, if he's able to live up to the billing of what he was at a, as a junior, as someone that could see immediate playing time and fit into that defensive line rotation, one that we've already heard from our coaching staff say that they'll go eight people deep. Yeah. So you've got to have got people to have at, at all levels. So I think, in my opinion, just from you know, you know, ha, you know, quote stars and and overall, um, you know, flash of a recruit. I think he fits the billing. Okay, so like any good recruiting period that uh, that gets discussed here, you know, we hit on the guys that signed with K State, but uh, as as any school goes through, they miss on some guys. Uh, there are a couple of guys, of course, we documented last week. On the short side option podcast, Gavin Potter, who committed uh, to uh, KU uh, just last week as part of their late signing day uh, class and had some theatrics along with it. He was a guy that K-State, as you mentioned, only signed one linebacker. um, And it's a position need for us. Was he the biggest miss or or was there someone else that you'd throw in that conversation for the biggest miss of the recruiting class? I think you could lump Gavin Potter in just the overall position of linebacker as a miss. Even with uh, in the early signing period, Yahweh Judy, uh, a longtime commit uh, with us, signed with Iowa uh, on a flip of a switch. And I think, you know, when you cut down, you know, the number of commits from three down to just one signing, I think you could look at that as an overall miss. Uh, still, not to take anything away from Khalid Duke, I think there's a lot of potential there. But um, also, I think another, per, you know, a couple other players, Gregory Brooks, who was a guy that we were hot after out of the state of Louisiana, where he winded up signing with Mississippi State. Again, really late in the game for our, our coaching staff. You really can't fault them with uh, a miss like that. And and even something that was maybe a bit of a pipe dream, but Danielson Ek, a kid out of Rockhurst High School here in Kansas City, just a monster def- or offensive lineman that wound up signing with. SMU and a, and, a, and a bit of a signing day coup for uh, the Pony Express, um, but those those are the ones who I look as big as misses. But there was nothing really to me that was earth shattering or can't misses because it's such a you get quick turnaround. So yeah, you get in the game so late and you are dealing with a class that, quite frankly, I mean, it was pretty darn bare. I believe eight or nine commits, and with those commits. You, you kind of wonder maybe what their level of commitment was at that point, of course, with the coaching staff turnover. So I think a pretty darn good job uh, by the new regime to be able to not only uh, maintain what, what uh, they had inherited, I guess, from the previous regime, but also go out and uh, go out and hop, get some new guys that uh, – you know, maybe the staff, the previous staff, wouldn't have been able to uh, to attain. So, let's kind of wrap this up here by looking forward to what's really a big recruiting class, uh, not only for Kansas State, but in throughout the entire state of Kansas. And uh, we mentioned Lawrence Free State High School. 
extensively here uh, throughout uh, w- with Jack Sinine and, and Keenan Garber. That's kind of where you look at for probably the top recruit on K-State's board here in 2020. Yeah, and so I think you look at the 2019 class as a bridge class, something to continue to build depth while also maintaining some stability as we move forward into what you said, Chris. 2020 is a foundational class, and it's one that Chris Kleiman and the rest of our staff have, have already shown You know that there's a major priority there at retaining local talent. We've already offered eight kids within the state of Kansas um, at this point in, 2000, or in 2020, which, you know, if we look back to the Bill Snyder method, like we wouldn't even be close to that. And, you know, it's a far cry from what we would have done in previous years. Um, but I think we identified in 2019 a need for speed um, at a lot of different skill positions. But in 2020, we, you know, we look at um, Turner Corker and Malik Berry out of Lawrence Free State High School, Hayden Pauls out of Emporia, you know, a really high-ranked offensive lineman. There's... Um, an influx of talent across the Kansas City area as well as in the St. Louis that we're hitting hard already. The number of offers that are coming out is staggering compared to what we're used to as K-State fans. But I think it's important to remember that uh, that's the norm. I think that what us as K-State fans are used to is something that is uh, an archaic way of recruiting. Well... Q, it's going to be a huge class, as you mentioned, because it has a real, not only the, as you mentioned, a foundational recruiting class for Kansas State, but also a great way, as as Les Miles at KU and as Chris Kleiman at Kansas State, uh, they're both vying for the, the, the players here in the state of Kansas. And to go out, and you're probably not going to win every recruiting battle, but if you can come away uh, kind of on the right side of that exchange, that sets a good tone here in the state of Kansas. Yep, absolutely. And just to kind of top it off, you know, we're not just battling last yeah. miles in Kansas no, anymore. No, sure. Uh, you look, Scott Frost is putting more of an emphasis in Nebraska recruiting in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that with Matt Campbell at Iowa State coming down and, and trying to poach players out of the Kansas City area. Um, and even, I mean, Oklahoma and Texas are going to pull their full, fair share. So, it's critical, and I think I've been very pleased with what Kleiman's done, you know, putting that emphasis back in and establishing relationships with the high school players, families, and coaches. So I'm really excited to see you as we move forward into 2020, um, and also pretty pleased with how we put a bow on the 2019 class and getting ready for spring ball. Well, and you mentioned too, and this is this is what I want to wrap up with, Drew, and you're, feel free to chime in uh, with any of your parting thoughts here, but under Chris Kleiman, uh, K-State has moved into the 21st century of recruiting. This isn't just a two-month-a-year, uh, um, I guess, pain of the job as, as it seemed to be for the previous staff. This is a 365-day uh, type of commitment uh, to bringing in the best talent that you can. And I fully expect to see K-State bring in a top 40 recruiting class here uh, via rivals and, and 24-7, all that stuff. But, you know, with a couple – uh, key commitments early. I think that would go a long way in in really establishing K State, uh, or really establishing K State's recruiting class in 2020. So, well, yeah, and to your point, it was just seeing the effort put forth by Kleiman and his staff over you know throughout the last couple months in terms of flying all over the country, Kleiman personally going and visiting some of these recruits in their home. It was. 
jarring because it. it you haven't seen that in a while. No, you haven't. And it was who was that linebacker uh, the, that the Nebraska? Will yeah, Honus? yeah, Will yeah. Honus. Snyder was set up to go out and visit him, and couldn't plate. happen. And it was a big deal because Snyder didn't go visit recruits in their homes, and I think he wasn't able to actually make that trip at the last minute. But kid lived in Wichita. Let's just say that he wasn't flying across the country. You're either. exactly, and so it was eye-opening to say to see K State's head coach actually putting this much personal effort into recruiting. And I think that's, uh, number one, a testament to Kleiman's priorities and also uh, the shifting with the schedule of spring ball to go out and say, no, we're going to build our practices around, at least our practice schedule around recruiting because this is a vital time. But it dawned on me that, oh, this is how it's supposed to work. This is what every other program in the country is doing, or at least the ones that have their priorities in the right uh, in, in the right order, to see coaches go out there and put an emphasis on recruiting and bringing in talent because the more talent you bring in, the less uh, scheming you have to do. And, and eventually you reach a point of diminishing returns with game planning and film watching where you don't have to work so hard there if you just bring in better athletes. And I think, you know, and just for me, the biggest thing for us is you can look back at recruiting rankings and where your class ends up. But I think a true testament to how well you're recruiting and building out your program is the number of departures and attrition that you see. And a pretty jarring stat that I was able to look up is over the past five years, we've had well well over uh, 15% of each of our classes, and, and in some cases upwards of 30 to 40% not live out their true eligibility with the program. And that just sets up for, I mean, you're, you're putting yourself in harm's way yeah. for the future of the program. And Don't so have the quality depth. Quality of depth and just playmakers. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I I have realistic expectations for Kleiman knowing what, you know, the cupboard has for us. But I think we'll, we'll really find out, you know, his recruiting medal as we get two and three years down the road with how the development of these players continue to go. Well, we come to you... Uh, recording this podcast uh, this evening of February 13th, 2019, exactly two months away from the spring game in Manhattan on April 13th, 59 days away. So uh, spring football will be here before you know it. That wraps up the recruiting uh, portion here of the short side option. Big thanks to Q here, but we are not done here on the short side option. We'll be back have a brief preview of the big game on Saturday against Iowa State, and then a quick turnaround as the Cats go to West Virginia to take on the Hoopies. Back after this. All right, welcome back to this week's edition of the Short Side Option Podcast, where uh, we're taking another break from Wildcat Legend this week. Another break, well, our first break from uh, Ask the Icon. Uh, just because, you know what, we're putting out so much content this week. We got basketball and football, uh, and a lot of football. So we're going to cruise on through. Do not worry. Those segments will be back uh, in next week's edition of the Short Side Option Podcast. But we are going to look forward now to Saturday's contest between Kansas State and Iowa State. And Iowa State started off as a team, well, I don't want to say started off, but had been a team prior to last Saturday that had won 6 of 7, the only loss coming to uh, Kansas in uh, Lawrence. And so that was uh, 
That was until they met the Horned Frogs in Hilton Coliseum, where they gave up 92 points in a losing effort uh, to TCU. But they will meet K-State this Saturday at the Octagon of Doom. A very hot K-State team, as we touched on earlier. Icon, um, how do you see this game shaping out? What uh, Obviously, K-State got a nail-biter win in Ames earlier this season, but uh, obviously a different... Well, K-State fans are viewing this season as a little a little differently in this edition of uh, the Farmageddon on the hardwood than they did earlier in the year. Yeah, so the, the game earlier in the year in, in Ames was really... To me, the turning point of the season, not uh, notwithstanding the West Virginia comeback uh, in the second half there, but when you go out and you win a game against a quality Iowa State team in, in a place that they, quite frankly, don't lose very often, um, it, that really speaks to that this team, like you see this team, they K-State goes to that game 10-point dog. Uh, you know, not a not a game that many people are thinking they have much of a chance to win, but they just kind of they get out to a good lead. Iowa State takes advantage uh, of making some shots and and some not some great great offensive stretches for K State. They get it out to about a seven eight point lead, and K State just finds a way to keep it close. And then uh, some heroics of Barry Brown uh, down the final stretch and some and some uh, sloppy play from Iowa State. Uh, allows K-State to get out of Ames with a win. So when I look at this game, I see what's going to be a very tight game. Uh, Iowa State uh, gets a whole week off here before they have to come to Manhattan. Uh, no game in the midweek, uh, but they're coming off of a loss at home uh, to TCU where they quite frankly got ran out of the gym by the Frogs in Ames. So uh, they're going to be wanting to get back on the right side of things. And, and in terms of the talent, they definitely have uh, the talent to do that. So it's going to be a tight game, and uh, I expect it to be close throughout. Uh, any problems presented by Shayok uh, for the Cats? You Is know, that somebody that you expect to have a big game? I mean, some people are saying, I don't want to say many people are saying it, but some are uh, saying that he is a candidate for the player of the year in the conference. Yeah, he certainly is. Uh, the Virginia transfer uh, is really one of the players on their team that's probably the biggest matchup. Little inside outside game, good outside shooter. One thing that K State did a great job with them in, you don't have to look uh, any further uh, than Xavier Sneed is the guy who's going to be drawing the primary defensive assignment on Shayok. Uh, Sneed did a great job on him uh, in Ames, and I expect him to, uh, to perform admirably as well uh, this Saturday in Manhattan. <clears throat> uh- so in terms, you said it's going to be a close game throughout. Uh, is this a game that you see uh, the Wildcats prevailing to continue their conference winning streak, or is this going to be one of those games where, uh, you know, K State might slip up? Well, Q, I'm going to actually pivot to you. I'm I'm not ready to give my prediction. Oh, so I want to get Q involved here because uh, Q, I know you follow the Cyclones very closely. Uh, you could call me Julia Roberts because I'm sleeping with the enemy, Chris. I live with the Cyclone. Uh, so I've, I've had to watch my fair share of stupid Cyclone traditions and watching their games. I, I, and you know what? I am going to start calling you Julia Roberts. Thank you. <laughs> He's a great pretty, actor. Pretty woman. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I think there's a real Jekyll Hyde when it comes to this Iowa State team. And for the most part, they've been a pretty solid offensive team with a lot of depth. Uh, when Mariel Shayok and Wigington 
who and you know and even Nick Weiler Babber going, they are a very tough They're team tough. to stop. Yeah, they are. And you know they've got five guys that can put it on the deck and shoot from three. So I I think they do present you know outside of Texas maybe the most athletic challenge for us along with their depth. But you know when they're cold, they are cold. And when Mariel Shayok's you know shot isn't going down, I think they're a very easy team to get down. Um, you know in terms of confidence, and you know something that I think is really weird from last year's, you know, Linda Wigington and Cameron Lard were two guys that were looked upon going into the season as first team All Conference performers. Sure, they're both coming off the bench right now. Speaks and, to the, the level of depth though that I yeah has. yeah the. the Talon Horton Tucker and the Tyrese Halliburton, you know, those are two really good off guards that they that Prome runs out there. But you know, I I like our defense against them, and that proved out in Ames. You know, with that stupid Hilton Magic stuff. You know, we were able to come out with the win. You know, I'm looking for the Cats, even with a shortened bench, to come out with a W this weekend. Um, one thing I did want to mention: you bring up Horton Tucker and Wigginton. These guys are guys that, quite frankly, they can shoot you into a game, into a game, and they can just as easily and probably more prevalently shoot you out of the game. Um, TCU is a prime example of that. Exactly. And see, I didn't get a chance to catch that one in full, but they, 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 it's – and I'm singling these two guys out with Horton Tucker and Wigginton from what I've seen this season is the shot selection sometimes is just awful for, for both of them. Horton Tucker uh, against KU and Allen Fieldhouse, he was really cooking, but starts sometimes feeling himself a little too much – and takes ill-advised shots when every possession in, in a game like that they played against uh, KU and Lawrence and uh, a game I anticipate uh, they'll play against K-State and Manhattan this Saturday, every pr- possession is, cr- is crucial and is of uh, utmost importance. And to be throwing them away on, on silly shots and bad shot selection, that's the difference between winning and losing. Yeah, my final take on this is, you know, having senior guards, guys that are taking care of the ball, like you said, and and driving our offense is going to be crucial. And and the, I think the bell cow, this is where we need to put him out to stud. Like yeah. he needs to go out there and dominate this front line. I am the Jacobson kid, the transfer from Nebraska. That's a total mismatch when you think of what Dean and Matt can provide for us. And we've got to assert our dominance in the post. They are a very Thin, small lineup at Iowa State. And the one thing, too, is that was Dean Wade's first game back against Iowa State. And Dean, I believe, poured in two points on a, uh, on a nice layup there, kind of in the final uh, five to three minutes of the game. But when you look at what Dean Wade was in that game, it was his first game back, he was not looking to push the envelope at all offensively. Different story this time around. So, uh Deluge, I'm not letting you get out of here either without a without a pick. Well, in Wade, 22 minutes against Iowa State in the uh, in the first yeah. go around, so limited action for limited him. Limited action for sure, um, absolutely. But that's a good point because yeah, that was, that was a very low scoring game. Yeah, it was a good point by you. Good, good, job. Yourself good, on the good, good job by me there. Uh, but uh, I expect this to be sl- a slightly higher scoring affair than the 50, 58 to 57 match uh, we saw in Hilton. Uh, but I'm with you guys, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about this one, especially because I think the home court advantage might just be approaching KU levels this weekend. Should um, be a great crowd. Because no, no reason for it not to be. I was looking at ticket prices this morning because I was thinking about making the trip out, out west with little uh, Q here, our uh, recruiting guru. Um, but get-in price was about hovering around uh, $70, $80. Is that after fees? Uh, 
before fees on StubHub, but uh, so you're single, looking- single tickets were still available through uh, K-State. Okay. So, uh, but in any, in any event, I expect K State. Those fees are where they get you on those things. Yeah, man. I forget which joke. I forget which one it is that I really like. SeatGeek. SeatGeek, that's the Seat one. SeatGeek and tickets for, but I mean, it's always baked in. But that's a, that's for another time. Yeah. In in any event, uh, I expect it to be a big, nice home court advantage for K State. Is uh, you know, fans are really starting to get behind this uh, this 2019 edition of the Bruce Cats, but. Uh, I expect K State to win this one uh, in fairly comfortable fashion. I, not quite. I don't know. I, I see K State's just rolling so well, and the offense is finally coming together that I wouldn't be shocked if K State won this game by ten plus. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I think I think that this is just seems like a game that I would be shocked if K State lost this game. Well. Uh... You know what I'm going to do here. So, uh, Q, let's get a. I didn't get a pick from you in terms of the score. Uh, what what are we what are we thinking here in terms of, of, of where the what the final scoreboard is going to read? My final score prediction is 69-63, Cats. Nice. What, what about you? Uh, I'm going 75 uh, to 66, KCA. Okay. You know what I'm going to do, boys? I'm going to follow a trend here. In K State's win over KU. 74, 67, seven points. Over Baylor, 70 to 63, seven points. Against Texas, 71, 64, seven points. Against Iowa State, I'm calling for a 78, 71, seven point victory for K State. We keep the sevens rolling, baby. Hey, book it. So like let's it. Uh, let's go ahead. We're all in agreement that K State's going to win. This is a game, however, though. Uh, when you look at what K-State has uh, the rest of the way, I think this is the second hardest game, uh, aside from going to Allen Fieldhouse and playing against KU. It's a game K-State's going to have to play well in, but with the way they've uh, K-State's been scoring the ball, uh, scoring over 70 in their, in their last four games, ever since that uh, abysmal outing against Texas A&M, uh, K-State scored the ball with pretty darn good efficiency, and has done well, uh, really, from all three areas. Uh, you know, from uh, as uh, one of the announcers said last night, Barry Brown is a mid-range savant. That's right. Uh, doing it from the mid-range uh, is a staple of this K-State team. Uh, but also, I like you said, I think uh, getting down in the uh, down the post. I think Dean Wade is going to have a much more pronounced presence uh, than he did against the Cyclones up in Ames. So we're all on the side of K-State, as K- and we think K-State's going to push their conference record to 10-2 and two as they... Uh, oh, 10-2. That's your favorite record. That is. Hey, so th- I was just a little bit... Well, K-State's going to go well above uh, that 10-win mark in basketball this season. But uh, for football... I think ten and two might uh, <laughs> might have been just a year too early. <laughs> so uh, you never know what's up uh, the icon sleeve here on the short side option. But that will do it here for this week's edition of the short side option podcast. We got you some basketball. We got you some football. That's why we're the premier uh, K State sports no, podcast. No Arby's news this week. No Arby's news, but I expect that that might be in the cards next week. You never can tell if he's listening. Um, who knows? So that'll do it for this edition of the Short Side Option. Thank you for listening, and go Cats.